So good evening, everyone. It seems like most of you have discovered the handout, and the challenge always with handouts is everyone's attention obviously goes to that. And just to say, this handout is not necessary, certainly for the talk I'm giving this evening. But as we settle into this long period of practice where we're really going to be steeping in Dharma principles, I just think it can be helpful to have a graphic like this list of lists that that, um, another teacher, Patrick Thornton, put together, called it the middle way, which is what the Buddha called his teachings, because you're going to be hearing a lot of Dhamma. Dhamma talks every night, uh, instructions in the morning, and in those sharings, we'll be referencing a lot of these lists. If you know anything about the Buddha's teachings, you know that he loved using lists. Lists of two and three and four and five and seven and eight and 108. And it was a really skillful way to teach because he lived in a time where there was writing, but it wasn't that common to have access to written texts. And it was actually considered more reliable to memorize the teachings So it was an oral tradition for 500 years or more. And when people chant, these these, um, texts and teachings would often be shared by chanting. And when a group of people chant together, they remind each other of of what they're chanting and, and correct mistakes. Whereas if something's written down on paper, especially the paper they had at the time, it could could rot away, it could burn. But this oral tradition really kept the teachings um, alive and enlivened because they were shared in that way. But it was also why lists are helpful. If you're trying to remember a, a, a teaching, but you know there's seven and you can only think of five, you know you've got two more. You need to go and ask your friend, what, were the one, what are the ones that I'm missing? So it's a great aid to our uh, understanding of the teachings. Even to this day, it's helpful. So this, as I said, is an overview that Patrick Thornton put together that has a lot of the major lists on it. You don't need to look at this again. You certainly don't need to memorize it. You could put it away for the rest of the retreat and you'd be totally fine. But sometimes it nags at you, right? Someone gave a talk on the seven somethings and you're like, what was that third one? Well, hopefully it's on this list. So, and what I'm talking about tonight as I think about the first night talk of a long retreat like this is a really big picture view of practice, an overview of what we're doing here. And so, again, I thought it would be helpful to have this kind of summary of the Buddha's teachings in a way that's very succinct. So if it's of interest to you, you can take it back to your room. You could leave it out there in the foyer. If you don't want to look at it again, it's up to you, but just thought it would be helpful. I really trust what I call Dhamma osmosis. You don't need to write anything down. You don't need to study texts. When we're practicing in this way, as I said, steeped in the Dhamma, it goes in at a different level than our you know, often cognitive level of, I've got to remember that, and how did that go together? Because what we're really trying to teach is a way of being, not teaching, you know, just techniques or or, um, lists to remember. 
It's about your practice here. So all of these talks that we'll offer, the instructions we'll offer, will all be in support of what helps you ground in the Dhamma, in this way of being in the world that the Buddha spoke about as being so freeing. So your own practice is the most important thing, not memorizing texts or being a Buddhist scholar, but how do you live these teachings? So I'm sure for you, as it was for all of us here uh, as teachers, that this retreat began quite a long time ago. For us, probably longer than you, because we had to come up with a plan for the retreat, which included inviting a team of teachers and you know, getting a sense of coherence among the team and uh, all of the details, myriad of details about how we wanted the retreat to unfold, the different practices and teachings and skillful means that we might offer. So we've had countless emails going back and forth between us as teachers and, of course, Spirit Rock in organizing it. Um, And then talking more recently about literally the day-by-day unfolding of the retreat. So it's been a whole process for us. And just like for you, when you first had the thought of doing a retreat, maybe started talking to friends or family, maybe looked online at how you would register, that's actually when the retreat starts. And I'm sure you felt as the time grew closer, your mind turning to being here and practicing. And maybe you started to have your daily life practice be a little more robust, a little more diligent. Maybe there were some supports that you brought in that you thought might be helpful. But this is, as I said last night, it's a journey that we're all on together. And we've all been orienting to this day, the start of this retreat, for weeks, if not months. And for us, it's really a couple of years. And so for me as a teacher, as my mind turns to the retreat, I start to think about what would be helpful? What do I want to talk about? Especially as I knew I was probably going to have one of these early talks as we're just settling in. And what I thought I would talk about is the really big picture of practice as we do it here. What's, what's skillful in that practice, in, in the different practices that we'll be off, offering, what are we actually cultivating, and what will, be, will we be talking with you about, both in these um, group sessions, but as we meet with you in practice meetings. And so I came up with this chart, which I know most of you probably can barely see, let alone read, and I am no, not skilled at this kind of thing, either at Venn diagrams or drawing. But as I thought of these different facets of the retreat and practice, these images came to me of how there are these concentric circles all leading to the heart of the retreat. So again, you don't need to see this to participate in this talk. If you wish, you can come up later. I'll leave it up until tomorrow. It's probably not that helpful at all in any sense, But it just made sense to me as I was trying to make this map, this big picture of practice. And a lot of these things are what, as I said, we'll be talking to you about here in the hall and in our meetings and helpful for you to keep in mind as you're practicing. Again, the really big picture. So in the outer ring at the top, 
what I wrote there was right attitude or right view. And this is where we orient to integrating the important teachings of the Buddha into the way we meet the world in our understanding. So the teachings, the wisdom teachings of the Dhamma, understanding suffering and the cause of suffering. So that important teaching of the Four Noble Truths, we'll probably give a whole talk on that. Suffering, there is suffering, the cause of suffering, the possibility of the end of suffering and the path leading to the end of suffering. It's about recognizing our states of mind. What is our mind dwelling on? And one of the frames the Buddha gave us to be uh, careful about or look for is these forces called the kalesas or these torments of mind, greed, aversion, and delusion, and how often they push and pull us in ways that create suffering. And starting to see as we shift our relationship or bring more wisdom to those experiences that it's not the object or the experience that's causing the suffering. It's how we're relating to it. And just coming to that understanding over and over again as we get caught, as we get fearful or angry, and we look to blame or point the finger, it's not in the experience. It's in how we're relating to it. So we learn to develop skillful means a more skillful way of understanding and being with this mind and heart that is tormented, that does experience suffering. But as we bring more skill and more wisdom in, what we can develop is a kind, relaxed, simple attention that just is able to meet experience as it is and not get into a struggle with everything that happens. Again, this is a very big picture. All of these are, could be Dhamma talks on each of these points. At the bottom, I wrote three different variations of this important mental factor of intention. There's intention that happens every moment, every action that we do, body, speech, and mind is precipitated by an intention. There's also, in a slightly bigger scale, the motivation, why we might be doing what we're doing. And then the biggest picture is aspiration. What is our heart's longing? What are we aiming towards? What is our biggest intention? You could say goal, but goal is always a little rigid to me. So I like aspiration. What are we cultivating here? Why are we doing this practice? Again, we'll talk about this as the days go on. What's motivating you? What are you cultivating? What are you aiming towards? What, what's developing and growing in your practice? And what might be lessening? Where is there letting go? These are all important elements of intention and motivation and aspiration. And so we want to be, as we talk about this practice as a journey, the Buddha often used this analogy of the path, that we're walking the path. So it's not though as though every step we need to be checking, are we going in the right direction, am I getting what I think I want, but more in the bigger picture, what's being developed, what's being cultivated, 
And just as importantly, what's being let go of? Where's the places of struggle or suffering that I'm able to actually release and relinquish? Because as the Buddha said, this path, the Eightfold Path, goes in one direction only. It goes towards the end of suffering. And even if we don't actually get to the final end of suffering that the Buddha himself experienced and countless numbers of other people have also experienced, we can feel for ourselves a lessening of suffering. And perhaps you already have in your practice of the Dhamma, in your understanding as your wisdom and compassion have grown, that there is a reduction in the conflict, the struggle, the contraction that you might have had through this practice and these kinds of understanding. So intention is key at what gets us going, what got us here in the beginning, and what will keep us going both moment to moment, but also in the bigger picture, just orienting again and again to freeing the heart and mind, seeing where there's the stickiness, the clinging, and learning how to let go, how to relate more skillfully. So that's the outer ring. And then the next ring, so again, these are kind of big picture and going into to more detail, more, more um, nitty-gritty, is continuity of mindfulness. You cannot underestimate the importance of this kind of cultivation. Mindfulness is necessary for all of the practices that we're doing, but we have to be willing to keep doing it again and again and again. This willingness to be present for our experience, whatever is happening if it's pleasant or unpleasant, if we like it or don't like it, can we meet this moment and know it as it is? This is the heart of our practice. We do it in our formal practice when we sit and walk. We do it in the informal times as we move about, in our rooms, taking a shower, during our work meditations. Ari spoke about being mindful while you're eating there is nothing that can, needs to be left outside of the potential for being mindful of it. And over the days and weeks of practice here, this is a factor that will grow for you. This ability to, in an easeful way, keep being present or recognizing when you're not present and coming back into presence. A great place we lose attention, lose our mindfulness, is in our rooms. We close that door and it's like we just, oh, phew, you know, got through that part of the day. Now I can kick back and I, there's not much to do in there, I don't think, but it's amazing how much we can fiddle around with tidying things up or remaking our bed or whatever it is. And again, we want to grow this. This is something that develops. I'm not, we're not expecting this to be happening at this first day of the retreat. But over time, this willingness, even this interest to be present, to know what's happening in this simple, direct way. And so we start to learn and attune to 
the ways in which we pay attention is the way in which we're paying attention actually supporting that kind of continuity? Or do we find that we are getting tired or frustrated or bored? This is the attitude that was in that uh, first circle. We need to check that. The way we're actually paying attention is important. We want to do it in as relaxed and easeful a way as possible because that is what will allow the continuity and the momentum. If we're always forcing our attention back to the object and beating ourselves up every time we have a sense that we've drifted away, that's not going to be much fun. You're not going to want to come back because you're always getting scolded every time you come back to being in connection with the present. There's got to be a welcoming in that coming back, an easefulness in that coming back. Because otherwise it will just be a struggle every time, every time. I've always appreciated the, the teachings of Sayadaw Utejaniya uh, in this area of how we practice. He doesn't care so much what objects you pay attention to. He cares about your attitude to those objects. What's happening in the mind as you're experiencing this sensation or this sight or this sound or this thought? So he'll say things like, don't have any expectations. Don't want anything. Don't be anxious. Because if these attitudes are in your mind, it will become difficult to meditate. This is hard to do. We come on a month or two month retreat if we didn't think, if we thought nothing would happen, why would we come, right? But that's the difference between intention and aspiration and expectations. Expectations have a, a contracted nature to them. I want this to happen. This should be happening by now. That's just going to tie you out. Not helpful. He'll say things like, if the body and mind are getting tired, something is wrong with the way you are practicing and it is time to check the way you are meditating. So there's feedback loops that are happening in our practice moment to moment. If we find we're getting tired or contracted, too directing in our practice, too kind of effortful, again, we're going to get exhausted. We won't be able to sustain it. So we want to pay attention to how we're practicing. And a classic way he will talk about practice, he says, why do you focus so hard when you meditate? Do you want something? Do you want something to happen? Do you want something to stop happening? Check to see if one of these attitudes is present. How often do we want something to happen that's not happening or to stop happening that is happening, right? And we're just going between a knee pain. We don't want that. We have a moment of connection with the breath or settledness. We want more of that. And so we can just bounce between these two polarities, wanting something to stop happening, wanting something to happen that's not happening. And this is greed and aversion playing out again and again. So paying attention to how you're meditating, the attitude, the intention, just the framing of your practice and seeing if there can be this sense 
of relaxation and ease, but that's not um, casual. That's the word Joseph Goldstein used, relaxed but not casual. I like that. Um, So we have a sense of ease about practice, but we also have a sense of diligence. And learning how to kind of balance those is so helpful, so important. So again, this is what we'll be talking with you about, certainly here in the hall, but in the practice meetings. How did you relate to that experience? What happened next? Can you learn something from that experience? The how, so much more important than what was happening and the attitude towards it. And so in the next set of I've got three concentric, no, 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 not concentric, overlapping circles. And in those, I depicted the three main practices that we'll be teaching here over these weeks. The largest circle at the top is vipassana or insight meditation, sometimes colloquially called just mindfulness. Now, mindfulness is kind of a generic term. It's become very popular, almost secularized, mindful this and mindful that. But it is at the heart of our practice, is mindful attention, which means meeting our experience and knowing what's happening. Um, and then I've included the Brahma Viharas that we'll start teaching tomorrow, these beautiful qualities um, of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity, and then samatha practice, tranquility practice. I'll talk more about each of these, but each of you will kind of move between these three circles, some strictly staying in in one area, maybe a little bit of the others. Um, Some may be focused on one or two of them. Others will do all three in a skillful way. So each of us will discover what works. All of them are skillful means. All of them are helpful, onward-leading ways of practicing. So it's helpful for us to have a sense of how each of them can support our practice and perhaps meet where we are in a skillful way. And as I've said, we'll insight practice vipassana is kind of our foundation, the mindfulness We're starting the first few days with what we call samatha practice, tranquility practice, where we're just inviting you to be very simple, just mainly with the breath or one simple object. And as I said, we'll start the Brahma Viharas tomorrow. This word vipassana, Pali word, Pali, the language um, that the Buddha's teachings came down in, I think this... There is Pali on this, yeah, in the italics is usually the Pali words, um, English, the translations. The English is a translation of the Pali. Uh, So vipassana is a Pali word that literally means to see clearly, to see clearly. It's Dharma seeing, though. It's seeing in a way that leads to more freedom. And so the vehicle of it is, as I've said, mindfulness. Mindfulness in that we meet our moment-to-moment experience and we know it clearly. We're not lost in a fog. We're not resisting it or 
or it's distorting it in some way, we're seeing it, our moment-to-moment experience, as clearly as possible. And over time, the qualities that come with that mindfulness can deepen, like equanimity and wisdom and a sense of contentment or well-being. That develops, but it begins by the willingness to keep showing up moment to moment and pay attention. Learning how to direct our attention in a skillful way towards whether it's a changing array of objects or keeping it fairly simple, as I said, some are to practice just on the breath. A big part of what we're doing in retreats like this is training our attention. And it's an unusual thing to do. It's an unusual thing in this society, in this culture, to take a month or two months and train your attention in this way. I'm sure you had discussions or conversations with friends, family, colleagues, when you told them what you were going to do for these weeks, they said, what? For how long? And doing what, you know, in what circumstance? For many people, it's kind of unbelievable that we would step out of the busyness, the richness, the complexity, the sensual um, overload of our lives and come into this relatively simple environment of a retreat center, relatively simple furnishings in our room, relatively simple, comfortable clothing, very different than how most people are spending their days. And to be in silence. I know there's often people where they say, I told my friends I was going to be silent for a month, and they're like, you? How are you going to be silent for a month? And sometimes we can feel that about ourselves. How am I going to do this? If this is new for you, an extended period of practice. But for many people, if not most of us, the silence actually becomes what's most precious. This refraining from the incessant compulsion or need or necessity to engage, to be convivial, to be productive, to be in relationship with, to be telling people this and that, to be discussing things, making decisions, to actually take a break from that. It's a blessing. I mean, we're so connected these days. I mean, carrying around a device in our pockets that, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, it was almost unfathomable that we would all be connected and that five-year-olds would have this kind of device in their pockets and not be considered safe to go outside unless they were tethered to this device that let the parents know at all times where they might be. Go into any restaurant and how many tables have people sitting across from each other, but they're all staring at their phones. Every airport, every bus, every train, people are just glued to these devices, checking their feeds and news and their buzzing and chiming and vibrating. And our whole nervous systems have kind of, in such a short time, gotten used to that. Hopefully you'll feel the difference it makes in putting that aside. Many of you already have, 
Tomorrow we'll do a formal ceremony. Um, so I'll remind you to bring your devices, your phones tomorrow if you're wanting to participate in that ceremony. So helpful to step outside of that relationship with, with the media, whatever it might be for you, different for all of us. And of course, there's ways in which these devices are amazingly useful, that we can communicate, get quickly responses from people, know what's happening. And it can be hard when there are loved ones you care about, but we really want to trust that if something needs to be communicated, they can reach us. And we just put aside that little bit of edge of, of nervousness or jangledness of, 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 of our system that comes with always being online and available. So it's this big shift of our attention to more these natural rhythms, the rhythm of the schedule, sitting and walking, the bells, the meals, the different things that will happen over these days. The rhythms of nature. Retreats are just a wonderful way to tune into the sun, the moon, the stars in a way most of us are never able to do in our everyday lives. We're not outside at night in nature. We don't hear the frogs croaking or see the owl flying at night. Really a different way to be with our experience. And as we shift that focus from out there and everything that's going on that I think I need to know about, need to respond to, we shift that attention more inward into our own hearts and minds. And we start to look more clearly, more consistently at what is moving us, what is shaping us, what are the forces, the pressures that we feel in our inner world. So we learn about ourselves. We learn about what's important, what we can let go of, the places that we struggle, the hurts, the grief, the loss, the anger. But we learn to have a different relationship with those experiences. We learn to see them more clearly in a way that leads to letting go and more well-being. Because there's a magic and mystery in this way of being, in actually paying attention to our hearts and minds in this ongoing, careful, kind way. And we see on a personal level, there can be deep understandings of the patterns that have shaped us through our family, through our experiences, our culture, our conditioning, our schooling, we can learn to understand those and actually find some healing and acceptance and even freedom there. But we also learn on an impersonal level, these universal truths that are not unique to us, but are these laws that the Buddha spoke about of the way things are. So often we're disconnected from all that. We're actually lost in a fog, in, 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 in uh, delusion, in denial, in contention with how things are. 
we're not actually fully present. We're, we're, we're anxiously or looking, anticipating the future. We're worried or regretful about the past. We're not actually fully present. In our time here, a big part of what will be happening is this unification where we bring together all parts of ourselves, perhaps parts that have been long hidden, long forgotten, griefs and hurts that can be open to and held with kindness and healed and settled or released. This integration that makes us more whole, not so fragmented, not parts that we're in denial about or forgotten about or repressing, this integration of a way of being. So we learn to accept the present, forgive the past, and relate wisely to the future. Those three things are key to a sense of well-being. And you could say freedom. Accepting, knowing and accepting the present moment, forgiving the past when we're ready, and relating wisely to the future, not toppling into the future, trying to manipulate or control it. So this is our practice, shaping our attention to knowing what's happening here and now. It begins with these simple moments of being willing to be present for this and this and this, for a breath, for a sensation, for a sound, for a step. But there is magic in that shift, in that learning to pay attention in this way. I love this teaching from Thich Nhat Hanh, that great Vietnamese teacher, He calls it the miracle of mindfulness. He says, mindfulness is the miracle by which we master and restore ourselves. It is the miracle which can call back in a flash our dispersed mind and restore it to wholeness so that we can live each minute of life. Thus, mindfulness is at the same time a means and an end, the seed and the fruit. Mindfulness itself is the life of awareness. Mindfulness enables us to live. So it's really reclaiming a way of being that allows for the richness of what's here, not in denial or contraction or fear or expectation, fully present, fully alive, fully here. The second of the practices we'll be teaching are the Brahma-viharas, one of the circles I put up there. I already um, named them the metta or loving-kindness, karuna or compassion, mudita, empathetic or sympathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity. And they're just really, um, they're beautiful qualities of the heart-mind, skillful responses to our experience. So we'll be teaching these in a, in a systematic way beginning tomorrow afternoon. But they point to something that's so essential for our practice here, but for our lives. How do we meet experience with warmth 
and acceptance, kindness and balance. That's what they're going to be teaching us. That's why we cultivate them, because they enable us to do that. And we start with metta, which is loving kindness, it's foundation practice, because being kind, it sounds kind of simple, it's so powerful. If we can learn to be kind to ourselves and recognize the kindness and compassion that's all around us, our hearts will become much more resilient and open. Because I actually think we swim in a sea of kindness. All of the acts of generosity and support that enabled you to be here, from you know, literally the people that are taking care of things for you at home or at work, or who supported your travel, um, just even meeting someone in a store or in a, in a, on a plane who supported you, smiled, offered some sense of kindness. The staff here at Spirit Rock, hopefully you've been met with kindness and respect and supported to have what you need here at the retreat. Kindness is really important. And so we want to learn to recognize it, and particularly to recognize it in ourselves, towards ourselves, but as a way we can also meet the world. I, I, I love that there are now, you know, the, the internet, of course, has all kinds of things on it, but there are websites that are devoted to sharing stories of kindness and beauty and love and compassion. And one that I go to again and again, um, actually, it started right at the beginning of the pandemic, and they called it coronavirus.org. So karuna is a Pali or Sanskrit word for compassion. And of course, we were being plagued by the coronavirus. So they said, what we need is the coronavirus. We need to spread this message, this practice of meeting experience with compassion. So they just collected stories and examples of people responding, certainly to the pandemic, but all kinds of acts of kindness. And it's just inspiring to read about. They actually changed their name now to coronanews.org, but I, I thought it was very clever. Coronavirus, may we all spread, uh, make contagious this sense of compassion and kindness. I love that the Dalai Lama says, choose kindness whenever it's possible, and it's always possible. It's just a great teaching. You know, can we choose kindness? Can we be kind to ourselves and kind to others? And not just once. We don't then say, well, I was kind yesterday. That's enough. We keep meeting the moment, meeting ourselves, meeting this experience with kindness. And the last of the practices, circles that I wrote up there, is the samatha practice. Again, a Pali word that means tranquility. It's a simple practice where we steady the mind, steady the the attention by choosing a simple or single object to pay attention to. What we're suggesting in these early days of the retreat is just to use the breath, this, this ongoing but changing experience of breathing in and breathing out. 
Or if the breath doesn't work, you can use the body posture, a kind of global sense of the body. Some people use sounds. There are many different ways to cultivate samatha practice, but it's very traditional to use the breath. Also, the metaphrases are a concentration practice, a samatha practice, so they can also be used. And as we do that, we collect and unify the mind around a simple object. There's a steadiness of attention. This can progressively deepen over time. What that can develop to are these states of absorption called jhanas. Now, we're not teaching that on this retreat. Most people won't get to that level of concentration. But these are powerful experiences that can be developed, especially on long retreats like this, that can be very valuable. But it's more what it does. This Everyone can deepen their capacity to collect and unify the mind to bring this singleness of attention to an object like the breath and find the benefit that can come from that. As the mind gets more steady, more collected, it becomes, as the Buddha said, more malleable, wieldy, responsive. And this is really helpful. And so one of the in the overlap of these three areas of practice, I've written some qualities that get developed. As my dear friend and colleague Sylvia Borstein would say, to what end, what are we actually cultivating or developing um, in these practices? And so there's many answers to these questions, but one of them would be what the Buddha called samadhi, which is... typically are often defined as these jhana states that I spoke about. There are four of them. But it can simply just be a mind that's unified and collected and supported by the other skillful means or eight factors of the Eightfold Path that we'll be talking about. So as we practice in accordance with these teachings, as our concentration deepens even just a little bit. I'm not talking about deep states, but just that we feel that there is this unification of mind happening. This is what can be developed. And concentration samadhi is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. So we take that concentrated mind and then turn it to insight, to seeing deeply into the nature of experience. And that can be liberating insight. And so whatever level you deepen or develop, concentration will be deepening over these weeks of practice, whether it's through deliberately doing it, through samatha practice, tranquility practice. But even as we open up, there's a kind of concentration called kanika samadhi, moment-to-moment concentration. Even if the objects are changing, We're aware of a sensation and a breath and a sound. We'll talk about this way of practicing. That can also deepen concentration. The mind getting collected and unified is what is supportive for deepening insight, liberating insight. 
Another result is equanimity, the mind becoming more balanced, more able to ride the ups and downs of the challenges of experience. Often in our lives and certainly at the beginning of retreats, there can be a lot of push and pull, likes and dislikes. Things are hurting, we're tired, the hindrances are present. As we steady in our practice, the mind becomes more resilient, more flexible, this beautiful quality of equanimity. And what we start to know as a felt sense is equanimity as the natural state of mind. I always like the example, it doesn't work so well with these glasses because they're opaque, but if this was a clear glass and you, it was water and dirt mixed in and I kept shaking it, the water would stay muddied because there's reactivity going on. But if I put the glass down and let it settle over time, that water would become still and then purified as the, the um, things that were clouding it settled down. This is what happens with the mind. As we stop pushing and pulling it, always in our likes and dislikes, over time, it just naturally settles. And we start to see, oh, that's what the mind is like. It's clear and responsive, but it's not pushed and pulled so easily. And then things come in, you know, obviously stuff will happen, difficult things, beautiful things, but the mind is able to move and find its way in balance with that. And lastly, in those overlapping circles is emptiness. And this is a challenging teaching of the Buddha. It doesn't mean empty as in um, devoid of anything. It actually means we begin to understand the conditioned nature of experience, that it's selfless, that there's nothing solid or permanent at the heart of our experience that's ongoing, unchanging, and then if we just manipulated it enough, we would get what we want and be happy. The Buddha said, this is not how it is. You want to be able to see clearly both into, as I said, our personal stories, all the conditioning, the way, the forces that have shaped us, and how if we respond more skillfully to those, begin to understand them, there can be freedom. And great healing can come through that understanding of our personal stories and habits and conditioning. But on a deeper level, in an impersonal way, when we see differently, we see our experience not through the story of me and my likes and dislikes, but actually see what the Buddha said was so important to understand the perception of the three characteristics of experience. And these are the characteristics of anicca, anatta, and dukkha. Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. Good. Messed the order up there, but these are so important, way, freeing ways of seeing our experience. As one teacher put it, that things are not permanent, they're not perfect, and they're not personal. There's nothing solid, lasting, 
unchanging, that we just need to put in order and get right to make things be the way we want them to be. It's not possible. When we start to see through this lens of the Dhamma that things are not perfect, not personal, not permanent, there's a freedom that comes because we're not in conflict with the way things are. And so it's not something that we can push towards, but it's a framing, it's a perception that we, if we keep reminding ourselves, because it's one thing to say, oh yeah, I know things are impermanent. The weather changes, the time changes, you know, the body ages or whatever. It's another thing to know it at a deep level where there's no way that you'll forget that as a truth. So we learn to come more and more in alignment with these truths of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. And from that, we learn it doesn't help to cling to things that are changing. If we cling and crave things that can't actually ultimately bring us lasting happiness, we're going to suffer. So we start learning to relate differently, to experience our inner experience and our outer experience. Joseph Goldstein, our teacher, colleague, and friend, says this line again and again, nothing whatsoever should be clung to. It's one of the key teachings of the Buddha, but he uses it as a practice instruction. He says, notice clinging and let go. Notice when you're clinging and let go. Notice you're clinging and that means you're suffering and see if you can let go. We do it over and over again um, as a practice. And then where these, these teachings go, all of these practices, all of these different words and lists is to what's in the center of this whole diagram, and that is freedom. Deeper and deeper levels of well-being, contentment, and freedom in heart and mind happiness, equanimity, well-being. The Buddha said it was possible. For him, he discovered a complete freedom, an end to suffering. All of us can deepen our capacity for freedom and well-being through these practices. So we'll be flowing between them. These different practices are skillful means, different ways of being with experience, and all of the practices inform each other, give us a different way of holding experience, of meeting something that's difficult, or uplifting our hearts, or opening our minds, all in the service of greater well-being, happiness, contentment, and freedom. So I realize this can seem complicated. As I said, it's right, the big picture. I, I know the teachers are going to say, you talked about everything. What are we going to talk about now in the upcoming talks? But every line in here could be expanded and deepened in our understanding and in our dialogues with you. Keep the practice simple. It's meeting the moment, knowing what's happening, and responding with kindness. If you can do that, over and over again, this practice will deepen, 
your capacity to, to be present, to be kind, to be centered, will deepen, and you yourself in the moment will feel deeper well-being, happiness, and contentment. So it's not like some long, dis- long in the future, you know, perhaps you'll get there someday. What the Buddha pointed to was, this is available. Just shift your perception, shift how you're relating, and there's a well-being and happiness and contentment available right here and right now through letting go, clear seeing, kindness, and contentment. So this is what we'll be exploring with you over these days and weeks. I look forward to sharing more with you and supporting the journey that we're all on. So as we finish these offerings in the evening, we just like to take a moment to let the words settle into silence. You can shift your posture or not, but just to let the words settle. If this feels like a lot, please just let it go. Take what was helpful, let everything else go. Often there's a word or two or a sentence that perhaps is helpful. The main thing I would leave you with is be simple, be kind, and be present. So thank you for your attention. Um, 